Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unqualified, a podcast about Formula One by the fans for the fans. I'm Graham Harris. I'm joined here by my uh, highly esteemed and, and, and slightly dark and mysterious room uh, co-host, Gerald Carter. Gerald, how was your weekend, buddy? It's great, man. Been looking forward to this uh, all day. How about you? Uh, my weekend was fine. I spent it in uh, Chicago for St. Patty's Day. Uh, I'm a little dead inside. Uh, but screw it. Let's start a podcast. <laughs> that, that day's as good as any. I'm surprised you're still standing. That's a bold place for St. Patty's Day. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, were you able to keep up with testing? It's been a. I feel like Formula One media has been in a flurry basically since January, but it really, really ramped up this weekend. How, how was how was it for you? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I would say the last two days of my week, while I should have been working, I was fully consumed by. All things <laughs> F1 testing, so uh, I was able to keep up with it quite well. Other responsibilities, not so much, but yeah, a lot to a lot to get through. So, I mean, we got we got two things to get through uh, on the pod today. The first is going to be a, a thorough recap of testing. We'll go through kind of team by team, and then we're going to talk about drive to survive. So it's a little bit of a two parter on the on the pod. We'll we'll try and make it uh, keep it as brief as possible. But before we actually get into the the specific test reactions, I did have a bit of a reflection just in general. Hmm. Like testing, this is so unique. Like, what other sport is is the preseason actually interesting, and why is Formula One different? You think? Yeah, it's a good question. I I don't think there is one. There is no comparison. I think where you get to see inside the inner workings of these teams and and the process. Uh, you could say recently, Hard Knocks has tried to give a bit of a window into that, but. I think it's unique from the standpoint of when you're going out and doing preseason football, your preseason is playing games. So right while you might be approaching it a bit different, different players, you're still playing the game, whereas testing is something totally different and not in the typical race weekend context. So I, I think, yeah, it's it's fascinating. How about you? Were you able to come up with a comparison? I, so the, thing about, the thing about it for me is I didn't care to actually watch a lot of the production Hmm. of testing. Okay. But I really, really, really wanted to be following it. Like, it's like there's this big ocean of content and most of it's boring in terms of like, you have two hours of laps, nobody crashes, nobody's actually posting a time that's actually indicative of relative car performance. But like, collectively through the whole weekend, you get like a, a really awesome push of like amazing media. And so, like, you want to be consuming all of it. I just don't care at all to watch it. It's a very interesting dynamic. I don't know. Well, I think that's why we're great partners, because I totally tune out the media, and I'm going right to the, <laughs> the source material. I mean, I could tell you about all of the concerts Crofty has been to in Bahrain while they rattle off Kings of Leon song names, just the most random of things over a four-hour stint. So I can respect the the interest but reluctance to engage at that at that level. There is a lot of... A lot of dead time. Uh, now, I think what you're saying is we were both equally as engaged, but you were like actually in there crunching real numbers. Meanwhile, I'm like on dead spin, just like consuming more <laughs> clickbait than like any single person should ever, ever consume. Which is yes, hey, you have you have an infinite number of headlines, no actual information or knowledge about zero. the sport. Yes. Oh, zero, zero. <laughs> Speaking of uh, having no relevant knowledge about the sport, maybe we should just dive in. <laughs> so let's. Ha- so maybe how we do this is um, there's a lot to cover. 
I don't think we could go through every practice session sequentially. I mean, geez, we had a another practice before that in Barcelona. There's been a ton of news and media. So let's just organize by team. Make sure that you give your kind of key reactions and takeaways per team, and then feel free to pull in anything else that's happened in the preseason. Just your general feelings about them heading into the first race in Bahrain. Sound fair? Yeah, yeah that sounds great. And and look, you know, you can spend the twenty hours watching all that practice has to offer and come out with basically the same takeaways as as what highlights affords you anyway, minus a bit of color here and there. But you know, even if you just take Spain off the table real quick, I mean, you'll hear it from all the teams, drivers. A lot happened. Very little to take away in terms of true, tangible rankings where people stand. I think the universal commentary that you hear from everybody is that a ton of unknowns. The car's a little bit more sluggish going into low-speed corners than they used to be. Harder visibility with the tires. And that's about all we got from from Spain. So really a lot of the, the color came from Bahrain. So if we want to turn to that, uh, let's kick off with with Mercedes first and foremost. I think my view... They made big waves at the start of testing, given their radical side pod design, the zero pod, if you will, Uh, a little bit of controversy right off the bat. Of course, why not about whether it's legal or isn't legal Uh, seems to be quite a creative interpretation on the rules. That being said, I think a little bit lacking on the track when it came to pace, they really didn't have any standout laps that put them at the top of the timesheets. And in fact, you know, while I think Russell showed showed up and he did what he needed to do. I think unfortunately with the porpoising uh, on day three, he might have a bit of brain damage coming down the home straight. So hopefully that's not per- uh, permanent as we get into the to the opening weekend. How about you? Any reactions on Mercedes? Uh, well, we're okay. How much of a fatalist are you on their, what their performance is going to be next week, just based on how testing went? Because I feel like the story oscillated throughout testing the side pod thing was a big boon. I think everybody thought they were sexy and just assumed by nature of that they were going to be fast. I, I don't know that they're in shambles. I don't think this testing was as bad as last year. I don't think that it's as clear that they've gotten the aero philosophy wrong. Uh, but yeah, so where, like, how fatalistic are you? Like, do you do you like knock them down? Like, do you think they're going to finish where they finished last year? Do you knock them down? Do you think this was a bad test? Like one 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 to ten. Like, what's their score? Yeah, it's a good question and and probably the biggest one walking out of testing every single year. And this is a bit of a consistent narrative that you hear, right? Mercedes not doing well. Are they sandbagging? They come come out and, and turn up well, relatively well first races, right? So you're right. Probably not a ton to read into this. I do think the biggest questions are going to be how and when people solve the porpoising issue. That being said, they consistently looked to have that problem in the most severe ways and only on laps where they subjected to poor Russell to the most extreme porpoising were they able to squeeze out a fast lap time, after which point he immediately pulls off the throttle to to alleviate that that movement. So yeah. I mean, it really didn't look good. So, I mean, if they can come with a solution to that, you're right. I think they could could be in a good spot and they've shown the institutional ability to adapt develop a really good car over the course of a season. But I do think, you know, the surprising competition that they had from Red Bull last year, I think probably put them a bit more on the back foot this year than, than maybe they were originally hoping. So we'll, yeah. we'll see. Where do you think they're going to finish in the constructors? I mean, it's, it's impossible not to have them in the top three, regardless of how testing goes. I, oh, yeah, I think sure. even not to have them 
in the top two would be uh, would be a hard claim. But I mean, I'll go out on a limb here and say, you know, they might be situated in in P three by the end of the the year in the constructors championship. So put it I'll put, put a damn P3. spot on the wall. You can put I'll them do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna put them at P three. You know, I think this might be me willing this into a reality. But uh, but that's uh, yeah, I'll go with that. I'm gonna put them in P two. So ultimately, here's here's my overall view of how the top three teams are gonna go. At the end of the day. If the worst the worst case scenario for Mercedes at this stage is probably a little bit similar to last year in the sense that like they got the aero philosophy wrong, but they've still got an engine advantage. Like that will be totally unchanged. Exactly. I th- I think what we saw like my view is Red Bull is where they are because Honda gave them a better engine. That's probably that engine's probably ninety five percent of what Mercedes has got under that hood still, which is still there. So if they get the aero wrong. Worst case scenario is they start the season behind, but you got to believe with the level of resources they have, what just happened this season is going to happen again. Like they're going to redesign that car. They will build new side pods. They will build new wings. They'll build new ground effect. And by the end of the season, like that engine is going to be at its same level of advantage again. So I think I put them too. I think they nip Ferrari in like the last couple weeks and get up into two. Yeah, and and the thing that stands out to me is with their new design, the the cooling is going to be a big question. I mean, their side pods were smaller, the the intake yeah. was smaller. So you're right. I mean, overall in terms of airflow, downforce, aerodynamics, they could very well have still gotten it right. It'll be the it'll be the question of engine durability, right? Because I think that's the battle that you saw last year with Red Bull with their hyper enduring engine. Didn't need to take as many penalties, but didn't have the the top end that Mercedes did while they just burned through those things in the in the latter half of the year. So I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to watch throughout the year. All right. So I'm two, you're three for Mercedes. Uh, let's move on to Red Bull. Yeah, where would you uh where would you have them overall? Where would I have them in the constructors? Oh, I think yeah. they're gonna win. I think they're gonna you got win. Man. Number one? I think they're on it. I I and look. I mean, it's it's known both you and I are Red Bull homers, and I think I become more and more one every single week. Uh, and also every single week, it makes me feel like I'm like riding the Death Star. But I kind of di- I kind of dig that. Uh, I, look, I think they've got the best aerodynamicist in in the sport, and it just looks like they've nailed it. And Ferrari may have also nailed the aero, but Red Bull that Honda engine is way better than that Ferrari engine. And so, I mean, I think these guys might just jump out of the gates. Um, they just look comfortable, man. There was no major issues. I mean, Checo had that mechanical failure. But aside from that, like, they just looked like they had showed up, got their work pale, and just kind of went about their business, which is kind of how people usually talk about Mercedes. And I don't know. I think they may be pretty strong next weekend. Yeah, I think both Red Bull and Ferrari seem to show up, run their program with minimal to no interruptions and mm-hmm. and do the work that they needed to do. So I would agree. I also think Red Bull showed like they really zeroed it in throughout each successive day. I mean, they got closer and closer and closer. The introduction yeah. of their new side pod on on day three, I think really brought it all together and and gave I think it had that that desired effect, you know, like Ferraris did at the car launch where everybody sort of jaw drops and second guesses, well, did we get it right or did we miss the boat here? I think to a lesser degree a bit, 
when Red Bull came out with their new side pod, I think people's eyes got a bit wide as well and realized, all right, there might even be some more in the car. But yeah, the thing that I take away from their car overall is while it seems like Ferrari and Mercedes took diametrically opposite sort of at least exterior body design philosophies, Red Bull still seemed to be a bit more moderated in between, a little bit leaner than some of the teams. So maybe a little bit more on the Mercedes side of the spectrum, but it seemed like they had a nice balance of kind of the shot, the side pod shaping, directing the airflow, but also a little bit of a leaner profile than you see on, on some of the teams. Let me ask you a question. How, okay. So Adrian Newey, like 30 plus years of being an absolute legend in car design. He's getting pretty old. How much of that car do you think he's actually personally designing today? Versus like, is he this like, I hate to bring the invoke the name of Joe Paterno on this podcast, but is he like this Joe Paterno figure who's just kind of like a legend in his own right, but then has 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 these brilliant underlings that nobody knows the names of that are actually doing like the real cutting edge work now, and he's just over there like designing the front wing on his fucking drafting board, you know? But that's like all he's actually doing, like. I have this theory that I think he's actually relatively uninfluential today in the actual car design, but he gets all the credit. Wow, that's that's a pretty uh, pretty bold take. So you got him at like that <laughs> Steve Jobs, like Bill yeah. Burr joke. Just got the underlings churning out these like fantastical ideas. He's not sitting in AutoCAD all day, like cranking through like how to actually design that car. I don't know. I, I It's a theory I have, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, and there's massive teams at the factory as well that are pouring Huge. through simulation airflow data. So, I mean, yeah, is he hands-on CAD? I don't think so. But, I mean, you see him in the garage standing over the shoulder of these poor mechanics as they're taking the tires on and off. And and he's you know leaning over and, and focused on the FloViz contouring, yeah. right? So, I mean, I think, again, I think it goes back to the philosophy. And can you capture the philosophy right? Does he need to know every single like small piece of the contouring? Maybe not, but I think if he has that sort of fundamental principle right and and the rest of the design and he sort of governs the rest of the design carrying through that, I think that's the role you need some uh, a lead aerodynamicist to play. Do, this is, brings up another question somebody actually asked me earlier today. I didn't know the answer to it. Uh, when, when they talk about like teams getting like allocations for wind tunnel time, do you know how that actually works? Because I was under the impression that most teams had their, like, I think they have a wind tunnel at Milton Keynes. So it was like the FIA, like sitting in Milton Keynes, basically telling them in their own facility when they can and can't be using the wind tunnel. I mean, they have, they have to be right. Yeah. I mean, they have their own equipment, but it's all time governed based on, I think it's inverse sequence of finishing from the prior year. But I mean, yeah, there's probably, somebody has got to probably sign in and they're, they're sitting watching like user logins on, on test time. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know how they're, I don't know how they regulate it. But how do I get that out. job? How do I get job is that, that job? Yeah. To be the guy. Just sitting at the command center. Just sits at Milton Keynes and eats powdered sugar donuts all day. Doesn't do a damn thing. And just like pisses off all of the engineers from the local team. That sounds incredible. He just, he just like dials in. He's like, you guys have got <laughs> five minutes left. Oh, that's great. Oh, okay. All right. Let's, uh, so summary on Red Bull. So I think they're going to win the constructors. Where do you think they're going to fall this year? I mean, it, this clearly shows the the bias that we both have here, but I got to put Red Bull at number one as well. I think namely because the thing that impressed me the most about the Red Bull, I guess two things. One, it seemed like on day three, both in the morning with Perez and in the afternoon with Verstappen, 
both of them have seemed to have the fastest times on each compound as the day progressed. And I think even more importantly, obviously Max came out and he crushed it, you know, first lap on each compound. But Perez did the same thing as he went out and set fastest laps straight out of the bat or straight out of the gate. And I think that was the big thing holding him up last year was the qualifying performance. And so if he can, if he can turn this around uh, and start the year effectively in quality, then you know, they're going to be a really hard team to really hard team to be in the sort of cumulative constructors. Uh, I agree with that. I also think we can't forget. Um, sometimes I, I hear a lot of takes, like people will take the top three teams like Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull. And they'll be like, who's got the best collective combination of drivers. I think Mercedes is the easy answer just because of how exceptional George Russell seems to be, especially for single lap pace, but also like he already sat in Lewis's car and kind of blew Botas's doors off on the same tire. So like, I get it there in that echelon. There's a debate to be had about Ferrari. I'm not a Charles Leclerc guy. I think he's kind of overrated. But then they're like, oh, well, Checo's just clearly an inferior driver to those other five across the three teams. So automatically place Red Bull in like this third rung of driver quality. But like, have we forgotten that this is only the man's second year in the car? He did have a fair bit of bad luck last year. And then if you look at the trajectory of just his average race pace relative to Max towards the end of the year, like I think there's a lot of reasons to believe he may come out and like maybe hang around in the driver's title for a little while. You know, I don't think he's going to be there at the end, but like uh, he could, he could stack up some podiums this year, I think. Yeah. Especially if they can, if they can get a good start, good start early, similar to, to last season. And, and I would agree with you. I mean, Checo is definitely the most underrated out of that group, easily dismissed. When I look at Mercedes, I would say, sure, maybe, maybe Russell's performance, uh, alongside Botas was indicative of of how he'll do, but similar questions with Hamilton, right? Of when you're trapped in the midfield, how effectively are you navigating through? And that car was wildly dominant to just an absurd degree. And so I do think there are still some questions worth asking as we go through the year. So, I mean, I don't think he's a, a proven commodity in that Mercedes by any stretch. And if you would have asked me, who do I actually think has the best pairing? I would say Ferrari. I think signs came into the car straight away, performed well, and took it to Leclerc when I think the belief was he is a decided number one driver. And so, I mean, I think Leclerc is going to have a lot of pressure on him this year if if Carlos comes out hot to, to make the claim that he's still the number one. And so I think that's why without that definitiveness, Ferrari is, I think, has the best cumulative driver combination. All right. Well, since we're moving on to Ferrari, yeah, general reactions to testing, how they do. Yeah, they look. The general consensus was, "Wow, amazing car upon the launch!" Right, gorgeous, totally innovative. The highly contoured side pods, the well-refined louvers uh, for airflow, received a bunch of praise and. And throughout testing, I think there was a good sense that the car on track looked solid, looked well-balanced, compliant through the corners. But there was then also some some flashes of really extreme porpoising. You don't know if that was because they were pushing the ride height particularly low or, or what the dynamic may have been, but... You know, there was plenty of runs with with Carlos in that last day where it looked pretty brutal on the porpoising as well. And so, you know, while I would love to see Ferrari uh, up in this number two space where I think they'll finish, 
I also wouldn't be shocked if uh, Ferrari fumbles the ball on this as well. And either the design philosophy was right, or they can't truly find the right balance with porpoising uh, or, or develop the car as significantly throughout the season. I just, I have a bad feeling that uh, the, the Ferrari fans will be disappointed yet again, even more so with, with the degree of excitement that's been built up with them around, with our, around the car launch and, and testing. Why is it, the word fumble just feels outrageously appropriate to me when I just think about like Bonato's face, you know, <laughs> like uh, it just seems like a guy that doesn't have a firm grip on what's going on. Uh, I look, I think at the end of the day, my prediction with Ferrari is I think that they might catch lightning in a bottle on the arrow early. I hear he points about porpoising, but like overall, I think they might prove to be a team that actually has some pretty substantial pace early on. I'm sure there's – I don't actually – one thing I don't really know a lot about is how the engine penalty they received in 2019 impacts their ability to – obviously, we're under an engine freeze, but, like, they were putting upgrades on that thing towards the end of last year that have obviously contributed to better engine performance. So I don't know – and I don't know if we'll ever know, but I don't think it's totally true that they're just locked into a really shitty engine. Like, there's things that they have done to it, I think, to improve the performance. So – my my theory is I think they have got an incredible driver lineup. I think Signs was previously very underrated and probably the most underrated on the grid. I think he's kind of started to get like some respect on his name, which I love. He's also a gorgeous human, like pro- easily easily the most handsome guy on the grid. So I mean, I think everybody wants him to succeed by that measure. I think they're going to come out of the gates hot. I think they might go into the summer break in a stone's throw, maybe even kind of like up there with Red Bull. I think they get out developed and ultimately fall to third. Uh, all right. So where do you have, where, where'd you have Ferrari finishing in the constructors? No, I'm second guessing my whole big claim on Mercedes, because I, I do think the, the question will be the, the rate of development throughout the season. I think Mercedes probably has a leg up in there. I will go out and, and claim an early advantage from Ferrari with a strong driver lineup, present some real issues for Mercedes. Um, and so I'll, I'll have them number two overall, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think the development would be a challenge. I think the big unknown is how that impoints, how that impacts points allocation in the early half of the season, because I mean, previously it's been a lot of Red Bull, Mercedes, one, two, three. If you're getting another car like Ferrari and you're getting McLaren uh, as much as you did last season, back up, taking points, taking podiums. It'll be really interesting to to see what the implications are on on end of year standing. So I hope they have a big impact. I hope they have a big role, uh, but reserving some some skepticism as well. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's keep it rolling. We've still got what seven more teams to get through. So let's uh, let's roll down. Who's in next? all reality? We have maybe two more teams we have to get through. The rest <laughs> of them, I think we can. I, I think we can breeze I, through pretty. I quickly. disagree. I disagree with that. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I've become a strong believer in a couple of the fish at the bottom of the barrel, and I'm about to get, I'm about to get real negative in some places that people are probably not going to appreciate it, and real positive in some places that people are also probably not going to appreciate it. I mean, it's easy to it's easy to take some dynamic reordering at the second half of the grid. I'm out here putting Mercedes at three right out of the gate, so I mean, I'm stepping I'm I'm stepping out on a ledge here early. That's pretty that's pretty provocative. Yeah. I don't you know I don't know what people are going to say about the podcast dynamic when they realize that you adjusted your take after I gave my Ferrari thesis, which means that your position was just incredibly loosely held. 
I think you should probably speak from your chest next mm. time. Mm. Maybe, maybe no one will actually believe you when you when you have a take down the road. But you know, that's neither here nor there. All right, number four, McLaren. McLaren. How are you feeling for this season? Early reactions. Where are they ending up? I think Daniel Ricciardo is in an IndyCar next year. Oof. I am incredibly pessimistic about McLaren. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of those seasons where like they're fast, but they're incredibly unreliable. I think that the gap between Norris and Ricardo in terms of relative performance, I, th- I think this is going to be a bad season for Daniel Ricardo. There's something about the way that car drives that he's just never been able to get in touch with. Um, and I don't think that's going to change at the end of the day. Like people have all these theories about why, like, the second driver, Red Bull, is always having a hard time. I think McLaren views Lando Norris somewhat similarly and in the car philosophy would commit to his driving style, and I think they do. And I I, I think that they're paying – if Ricardo shits the bed, which he will again this year, they're not going to pay him $20 million to do it a third year in a row. So I think McLaren has a tough year. Lando out, outperforms the car, reliability issues, ugliest livery on the grid – here, here. Other than the pink B- BWT Alpine, which isn't a real livery, it's the ugliest livery on the grid. It had so much potential; it was poorly executed. I think McLaren is in for an absolute world hurt. I, yeah, I think th- I think there might be some structural reorganization coming at the end of the season for McLaren, somewhere in the order of leadership. Wow, hot take on on Danny Rick. That's that's bold. The man lives in L.A. I feel like he's already he probably is already like lined up with an IndyCar team. If we're honest, like he was always meant to be an IndyCar. Well, and, and getting COVID through testing, I mean, such a hard break for him has shown a little bit more slowness to adapt to new cars, both at Renault and McLaren last year. So you think Hilly's actually going to regress from last year? Cause he started to arguably seemingly have a, a better grasp on the car, but you think that all goes out the window this year? I don't think he gets within... I don't think he gets consistently within a half second of Lando's qualifying pace. Wow. I don't think he ever get I don't think he get gets inside of him. Wow. A half second. Yeah. I think you're maybe a little bit a little bit pessimistic on Ricardo. I think he finished off the year modestly well. I mean, certainly disappointing to where a uh, a race winning driver should be. But I mean, yeah, he's definitely in the hot seat. He needs to come on board faster than he did last year. I mean, he, but the only case I would make as why he won't be an IndyCar next year is, as we'll get to in the second half of the show, his prominence in Drive to Survive and seemingly being the the American face of F1 at the moment, I think will be the only reason that a, a team would keep him around and, and be the poster boy for the States. So, I mean, you talk to anybody who has only seen like three episodes of Drive to Survive, then you ask him who your favorite driver is. It's like universally Ricardo. And so I think fan favoritism alone keeps him on the grid longer. But to your point around contracts, something we should look into is what are, where do you go as a driver when you command that kind of salary? Can you can do you take a pay cut? Do you have to leave and go elsewhere that you can still command that, but you have that sort of novelty brand, like you said, going to IndyCar? Like does he cut his does he cut the rate of his services? Nah, that's kind of my point is like he, he he's gonna either have to take like a 70% pay cut to stay in formula one because no one's going to want to, I mean, I I'm relatively sure that his two, I th- cause he signed a two year deal, right. When he joined McLaren, I, I I'm pretty certain he's making more than $20 million a year. 
And they just re-upped Lando to like a undisclosed long-term thing. They're probably paying him a boatload of money. And like, if they're going to want to keep McLaren was in financial hardship big time a year previous. They re, they like basically reversed mortgaged their headquarters. I don't know if you ever saw this in the news. They literally like took out a cash investment and now are le- did a leaseback arrangement with some U.S. like REIT, and they don't even own their building anymore. I mean, hell, that thing may get repossessed. They are so bad next year. I like I. <laughs> it's a gorgeous property though. Beautiful, dude. This is going to be like that scenario where, um, oh, what's his face? Like Thierry Henry comes to the MLS for the like, like the last couple of years of his career and ends up making more money than like he'll come be the face of yeah. the face of the new age of IndyCar in the U.S. and they will lap that up. They will probably pay him more than twenty million a year, and the media they'll try and it, think about the position IndyCar is in, man. Like they are getting pummeled right now by Formula One, and they are going to want a marquee guy to try and build the brand out and like react to like this groundswell of F1 support. I think he's gone after this year. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, my sincerest hope is that he stays and he comes and he delivers because it would be even more wonderful to see that team perform well. I mean, they, they seem to have the best grasp on the porpoising their overall aero design with the floor seem to flush out the air and, and help maintain some of that suction to the track. Uh, But then they've had some break, cooling issues during practice, which took them a lot out of, uh, off the track for a lot of time. And then Lando took 100% of testing. And so to your point, man, that's a big hill to climb in a brand new car, no time in the seat going into first practices of the race weekend. So yeah, he's got a, he's got quite, and I think of all the drivers on the grid, Lando's probably in the biggest low risk position out of any other, any other driver in car, right? They're sitting number four, they seem to be clearing away from the rest of the midfield. There's not a massive expectation that they're going to be breaking into the to the top three. And he doesn't seem he's not under threat from a a a clear or a challenging number two driver. So, I mean, I would be very happy to be in Lando Norris's seat this year. Yeah. Look, the unfortunate thing about McLaren is, and you, you just alluded to this, it's a team full of nice guys. It's a team full of nice guys. Zach Brown's a nice guy. Andrea Seidel's a nice guy. Lando Norris is very likable. has a huge social media presence. Danny Ricardo is incredibly likable. Ultimately, what will happen to this group is it's going to be the team. And I mean, especially for a U.S. audience, with Zach Brown being an American, it's a team that everybody wants. And I hear this in your voice. You want them to succeed. Badly. You do. And so do I. I want McLaren to succeed. Hell, I'm a Clemson fan. My blood runs orange. If I can get a twinge of orange on any car on the grid, I'm like, I will paint their logo on my chest. I want McLaren to succeed, but I, I think the unfortunate reality of this is going to be they won't, and it's going to sting. But it's hard to win. And I know, I know you've been desperate to to get some of that merch, but you got a, a clear top three rule for uh for race car merch so uh hopefully hopefully they're they'll be there but also let's go back livery totally agree i mean it seems completely uninspired i do like the lighter blue i think that has uh echoes of kind of their older livery the the throwback livery they used last year at monaco absolutely love that but it just seems so plain they have one band of orange the rest of it's blacked out there is no sort of visual design philosophy and it's it's rather disappointing so i mean the only car i would claim is less inspired 
is is the Williams car. While it has that perfect like factory sort of low key look, the Williams oh. is the most like it just seems like somebody had a sticker box and like let's put a couple of red chevrons here a little red line here it's it it's way too boxy and and straight edged for what should be a very fluid car so other than the williams i think mclaren's at the the back of the livery grid i think you are being very hard on williams we'll save that for later when we get to the actual team i couldn't disagree more with that i i would actually like to give williams credit i'll I'll yield that their aero design if they're if, if you give out an award on the grid for most similar to the marketing car Hmm. Like the F1, like marketing car for the new regulations, like Williams probably wins that award. They just looked at it and thought, yeah, that's pretty good. That's got to work. Yeah. These Doralton Capital guys don't know shit about racing. Like they're just so, they, they, their engineers show them stuff. They're like, oh, that thing looks fast. And they're just like, go back to their corporate circle jerk. Anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, closing, but closing point on McLaren uh, is nobody, nobody knew that the Washington football team name was coming. But once it came, it stuck. And when they were thinking about making the new direction, they should have just stayed with it. I feel the same way about the golf livery for McLaren. They literally should have just made their new livery, the golf livery for Monaco. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with that? Change your sponsors, do all that. I, I get it. Like, why do you have to reinvent the wheel? You had this groundswell of like media and merch attention for a livery that everyone loved. And then you basically try and half-ass it. Yeah. And in the execution, it makes something infinitely worse than that or what you had last year. So, Well, even if you don't stay true to the, to the Monaco throwback livery, I mean, lean on that a little bit more at least. I mean, they took yeah. the blue, great. But it seems like everything else went out the window and, and they took this sort of totally unique structure and conflicting black and orange design. So... Um, I mean, their car looks a little bit like all of Ferrari's gear, right? They made some commentary on this as, as black has sort of grown in prominence in all of the, the merch and car design after a couple of years of a black Mercedes. But I mean, I, I think Ferrari similar went in this weird yeah. direction of their colors are a dominant black now. And uh, where I was excited to see a pure, pure red car in their traditional Ferrari red uh, now that Philip Morris is, is no longer a sponsor. All right, where do you have them finishing in the constructors? I got them in a pretty, pretty safe four. You are you gonna are you are you taking a more controversial take here? Have I blown your mind with that that insightful take? I'm sitting here considering being extremely punitive. Wow, this is a, you're giving him a Danny, Danny Rick penalty. I think I'm gonna put I'm gonna put him in sixth. Whew. Sixth. That is. I think this is a nuclear year for McLaren. Wow. Wow. And now is that just on the shoulders of McLaren? I mean, I'm sorry, on the shoulders of Danny Rick? No, no, not enti- no, I think that they're going to have massive re- I think it's going to be Danny Rick and reliability are okay. going to be the two gotchas for sure. All right, wow. And, and and then in general, the dynamic is the the grid is not going to be as uh there's going to be more parity across the performance of the teams because Ferrari's going to be in there taking points from Mercedes. And so I think that's going to naturally lead to less dispersion hmm. between the McLarens and the best of the hmm. rest because yep. Ferrari is going to be more consistently beating them. So they're not going to have all these big points hauls. Yeah. I could find Closer them. Closer margin, a couple of races yeah. where one driver's yeah. down. Yeah. It starts yeah. to get pretty fine, fine in the differential. Wow. I'm, a, I'm curious to hear who's, who's filling the gap then. Well, let's move on to, 
to Alpine. They they finished fifth last year. Where do you where do you have them stacking up for this year? Fernando Alonso is the only redemptive thing about this team. Everything mm-hmm. else about it, I vehemently hate. Esteban Ocon, I would say, along with Nicholas Latifi, is one of the worst drivers on the grid, just in terms of the overall performance and personality. Don't like him, never will. Worst livery by far. It's like it's like they just decided they were just going to pimp themselves out to BWT because they were available. Like You got sloppy seconds from Aston Martin in the sponsorship <laughs> game, which doesn't bode well. Uh, I, I, I have absolutely no love for Alpine this year. I hate it because I like Fernando Alonso a lot, but I just – I have literally nothing else to say about him. So where do you have him at the end of the year? Oh, uh, so I, I would say probably – I'll go eighth. Eighth? Wow. Yeah, They're eighth. Quite the fall from grace. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Um, but you- how do I follow that up? I mean, I don't totally disagree with – any of the points that, that you've made. I think going to the BWC, BWT sponsor thing first, I mean, it has to be such a dichotomous uh, news that you get when you realize you've signed a, a contract with BWT. You have a sort of a big, big corporation. You've got the big money, but then you realize you're going to be decked out in pink for the next foreseeable future. Um, and your car is going to look like a Pepto-Bismol bottle. Uh, so I, I think what it's... Does- what does BWT even make? Like, what does that company do? Do you know? Genuinely, I have no clue. I'm pretty sure they are like an oil and lubricants company. <laughs> oh boy, we were way off. What, what do they do? Um, it appears that they are a... Uh, Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah, They're guess a water company. What kind of water? Bottled? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how many answers there were to that question. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they, they. I'm. You must have known this before because it, they, it was in my subconscious. They are a water company, <clears throat> water treatment system and services for drinking water, pharmaceutical and water processing, seawater de- desalination, fuel cell membranes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Th- they thank are, you for. Water. Thank you. Thank you for wasting 20 seconds of the pod by reading from their Wikipedia page. I really appreciate that. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right. I'm, I'm glad we were able to inform the audience on this highly critical yeah. news. What? So where do you think they're going to, where do you think they're going to finish till we can move on? Oh, I put them at, uh, I put them at six this year uh, behind AlphaTauri. All right. Uh, moving on to AlphaTauri. High level takeaways. Yeah, I think they, I think this year they, they jump above Alpine. I think I don't see Alpine having a lot of upside potential in driver performances. I, I think their car will be fine, but but the, there's not an there's not room to grow or outperform. I think prior year performances. Whereas you look at Alfatari, Gasly blew the doors off of qualifying consistently last year. Had good race pace, but Yuki on the other hand was a bit of an anchor in terms of points throughout the year. But that leaves massive upside for him this year. I think after sort of coming to grips with what his role is on a Formula One team, the responsibility that he has to help one develop the car, but more importantly, bring the car home every weekend, especially after practices or after qualifying and actually get to a race weekend in one piece, particularly with the driver, uh, particularly with the cost cap this year. I think he showed some, some more maturity in the later half of the year, got his, his weekends down to a bit more of a science 
and I think he'll qualify a lot higher on the grid more consistently. And by that nature alone, put Alfatari in a position to to outperform Alpine this year. I I 100% agree with that. I think, uh, it, like I said, McLaren's a team full of good guys that you want to succeed, but they're not going to. Alfatari is a team full of bad guys mm. that you don't want to succeed, but I think that they will. Yep. I don't like Pierre Gasly. I don't like the French in general. Yuki is, I mean, especially after watching Drive to Survive, which we'll get to in a minute, a confirmed prick, like, to the bone. I don't think it's even to the level of just, like, age immaturity. I think he's genuinely a prick. And so I don't want these. And also their team principal, I didn't even know his name, which means he's obviously a relatively uninspiring fellow. Like, I don't want these guys to succeed. I also don't like that they're sister teams in Formula One. I think they should be independent. Hmm. That's another conversation for another day. But I agree with you. I think that they're going to – they got a Honda engine. Like, I think that they're going to outperform on a relative basis. So AlphaTauri is relatively low on your favoritism list, though. I, I I didn't recall you being so down on AlphaTauri just as a as a team and, and and as a culture. I'm I'm I mean, obviously, I love Red Bull, but I have no loyalty to AlphaTauri as an extension of my love for Red Bull. I it, it it's born out of like their cast of characters. I find genuinely like repulsive. Hmm. Well, in France, they poor Toast. I mean, he is virtually non-existent in anything i mean to your point i have followed things pretty closely for the last few years and to your point hardly think of the man's name and so i don't know if if the producers in in all these segments view him as uninspiring or if horner and and sort of the red bull moniker play such a dominant role that he gets to hide behind the scenes a bit but but yeah that is an interesting an interesting take i the first time he came on like to be interviewed for the netflix stuff I thought he was like the fashion guy, like behind AlphaTauri. I didn't think he was the actual team principal, like this old, like European man that looks like he's been like cutting reams of fabric for thirty years. Like this guy's not. You thought he was like, just measuring up the merchandise <laughs> and like the swag for the for the weekend. Yeah. Thought oh, he was man. like their cob their cobbler. Well, I have to say, one of the the coolest parts of of testing this year was a was a stint in in day three where. Gasly and Hamilton for a number of laps battled back and forth. And, and while I think ultimately Hamilton got the better of the exchange, uh, Gasly put on a a decent enough show to give me confidence that, that they'll be in a good position this year, especially if, if Yuki, um, if Yuki improves on last year. All right. So you had, uh, you had Alpine in six. So are you putting AlphaTauri fifth? AlphaTauri fifth for me. I am, I am going to also put them fifth. Okay. As well. Yeah. So fifth for AlphaTauri. So where does that leave what? Aston then? You have them bumping up above Alpine this year, well, huh? It leaves the the question of Graham, you haven't put anybody in fourth yet. Is it going to be Aston Martin? And the answer is absolutely no chance in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that this is going to be a train wreck of a year for Aston mm. Martin. And I say that with a bit of just grief in my voice because it's a beautiful car. And I really, really like Sebastian Vettel like a lot. Yeah. Um, But I have no faith that any of the long-term investments that Lance Stroll is making in the team are going to pay off in the near term. And I don't think there was any evidence over testing to suggest that they Lawrence Stroll, but one of those investments being Lance Stroll, uh, which I'm not sure the ROI has, has paid off on that one yet. 
or I'm quite confident it has not. Let me <laughs> let me frame that a little bit more definitively. That investment has not paid off. He is one of the the ones hanging on there now that um, that Mazepin has been sanctioned off of the grid. So we'll um, we'll see if he can kind of perform for the for the billionaire boys club. Also, Mike Crack, their new the guy that replaced Otmar, like. I think was involved in all that shady stuff that happened at McLaren right before Lewis left mm. when they had that like Spygate thing where they were like steal like it's a crazy story if you haven't heard it, but they basically like got caught for essentially stealing some of the Ferrari like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. schematics or whatever. Yeah. I think Mike Crack was like the guy that was never officially named but like involved in that. So it's like Stroll brings in this like shady, mysterious character to run thing. I, I just don't this is an example of like I think bad guys that don't do well. Like yeah. I, I, so anyway. Yep. No, that's that's an interesting take. And and look, I um I have not seen anything to to count from them in in testing or in prior seasons to make me think that they'll be any higher than than that. I have them in seventh after Alpine. Um, again, look, interesting car design caught a lot of eyes early on. I think the best thing I can say about Aston is. Their their new green color that they have on the livery is oh it's sweet is stellar I love that yeah. I think it'll definitely make the car stand out more on the grid but yeah I don't think they've they've done anything in particular in in testing that would warrant them being higher up and again I think you'll have question marks on on how Stroll actually does throughout the year and while Vettel has seemed engaged and excited about the season. Uh, we'll see if, if that maintains or, or if he reverts to a bit of apathy about the year, which, uh, will, won't do them any favors. Yeah. I got him in seventh. Um, all right. so, I think that's yeah, the, I think other than Red Bull, that's the one we agree on. So, all right. Yep. Aston and seven. So, um, so that leaves us the, the, the bottom three from last year, Williams, Alpha, Haas. I mean, break these last three for me and, and tell me who is this mystery fourth fourth place finisher uh Look, here you're not gonna like it i think haas is gonna finish fourth in the constructors <laughs> i'm buying I, i'll take i want all the hype i want all of the magnuson at the top of the sheets mm, schumacher at the top of the mm, sheets i want I, i'm buying all the hype i'm mm, subscribed here's my theory overall and i think that the ukraine thing and having the mazapins is very much just like they might become a team of destiny Think about, they now have likable drivers. Okay, Magnuson, it, relatively like little known, but I think ultimately his reputation was a bit pulled down by Grosjean because everybody hated Grosjean. Yeah. And, but at the end of the day, you got American ownership. You got one of the most entertaining and lovable crazy uncle team principals on the grid. By, in yeah, Steiner. I mean, massively ahead in likability. And, and I got to tell you, like, I think a lot of people that are negative, if, if anybody's negative on Mick Schumacher, they might just call him like daddy's boy, prima donna type thing. I, I really like Mick Schumacher. I think he is a humble dude, hard worker. The whole story with him is he's better. He, his first year, he's kind of an adjustment year type guy, and then he starts to get it. He won both lower formulas. The dude is a good driver. I think Haas has a chance, if they can get out the gates fast, to win some hearts and minds and become like a darling team of the U.S. fan base throughout the season. I really do. I I love your optimism and enthusiasm for this team because uh being with the American ownership, I mean that was the first team 
jumping on board in addition to to Red Bull several years ago and wanting them to do well and then just not being able to stomach the season after season, race after race of shocking disappointment, not even to, you know, win, God forbid, but just to to be in the race. Uh, so <laughs> I have... <laughs> Dude. Dude, the, the funniest part of Drive to Survive was remembering that at Bahrain last year, Mazepin crashed in his third turn. Yes. <laughs> Poor Gunter's third. like, how the hell does this even happen? I don't. I can't even explain it. It's not like he was bottled turn. up there in the midfield, you know, wheel to wheel. You know, he might as well just be the that that medical car leading up the the, the tail of the pack. Yeah, I. Dude. And look, I think while you make a very compelling case, primarily just because of the emotional appeal, um, very light on any sort of real facts. Um, yeah, look, I think I think you definitely have Magnuson, which is Magnuson, which is a a better anchor. I think they they took a huge risk with two young drivers, and losing one of them did not pay off. Now, um, and so I think it will be a huge help to them to have some experience and. Totally agree. I mean, I think Schumacher has to be like one of the seemingly nicest people on the grid. Um, just a, a genuinely nice guy. And so would love to see them do well. I just, these poor guys just can't catch a break, man. I mean, what team is caught up in geopolitical controversy and, you know, has a dr- has to lose a driver because of that? It just seems like they can't catch a break, unfortunately. I mean, that might have been their break in all honesty, but it just seems like one thing after another, but look, I think they did have solid performances. I mean, Magnuson on day three went out earlier than everybody else. I, I don't know how the track truly evolved and how that impacted because he didn't have stellar times, but Mick did in the afternoon when the track was seemingly better. They got a lot more running in after the fact because of their whole uh, logistics issues. So yeah, look, I mean, it's it's a bit of a mystery here down at the bottom, but I, I as well hope they do well. Uh, that being said, I have them at 10th. That... The Ukraine war and the whole Mazepin saga was like manna from heaven for Haas. Mm. Now, I have no idea if they're going to dodge financial ruin. No idea. No clue. Like, no clue how they're making up for what Urukali was investing in them. Maybe Andretti will get involved. Maybe they've got a U.S. backer who's going to fly in and try and save them. I have no idea. Yeah. But that, like, one thing that the Drive to Survive episode on Haas taught me they were terrified, Gunther Steiner included, of the of that family. Mm. They were they were freaking terrified. I think that everybody's like, "Oh, Haas, champions of social justice. They got rid of the Mazepins. They made the decision super quickly when all this stuff started happening." It's because they were like dying for a reason, like literally dying for a reason. I I think they caught such a huge break with that. Yeah, they saw the they saw the opportunity with that very early on and would happily have justified that any way they could. I mean, yeah, let's do a follow up on on the financial situation of Haas and the and the implications of that. I think that'd be an interesting deep dive. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a blessing. I just think uh, unfortunately, you know, the way the sport works today, I, I think it is just so much harder for smaller teams with less institutional knowledge, even on the heels of a big rule change, whereas that was oftentimes seen as a, as a big opportunity for, for teams to kind of jump up the rankings, which it seems you've subscribed to. I I worry it is still a bit of a comedy of errors over there. Um, and, and that'll leave them at the, at the back of the grid, but 
similarly. I, I hope I'm wrong and, and they have a bit of a bit more hope uh, and reason for optimism this year. Because I, I as well love Gunter. I mean, we'll talk about it a bit more, but the, the job that that man has to do to just manage um, the organization away from ruin on a daily basis is quite an impressive job and, and totally different than I think the, the jobs that others have to do uh, at times. So we'll see. I find your rationality incredibly uninspiring. <laughs> All right. Last two, Williams Alpha. Where do you have these two shaken out? Williams, I like, I love Yost Capito. I was, I was an Alba. I liked Albon before he really kind of shit the bed. Um, but at the end of the day, I just don't think they've got the horses. I'm skeptical that a relatively otherwise unpassionate private equity company can just throw some money at Williams and all of a sudden cure their ailments. Hmm. Like the DNA that made that team, what it was is long gone. And yeah. uh, so I think they're going to be at the bottom for a while, unfortunately. You're putting them at 10? Um, honestly, man, like between Alpha and Williams, who's going to be at the bottom? Like maybe I'll give the nod to Alpha on the basis of having Botas and put them at nine and put Williams at 10. But hmm. I think both are going to be equally uninteresting. I mean, geez, Will- Williams's apparel sponsor is Umbro. When's the <laughs> last time you saw anybody wearing Umbro? Like... Last time I saw Umbro was taking a trip to Mexico and playing soccer with some folks down there. I think yeah. on their soccer cleats. That was the last. That was the last Umbro uh, gear I've seen. So, yeah. Look, I think um, I have them as eighth this year again because I, I kind of copied the the grid from last year. I, I think what's so tough here, and I could see them being a, a nine and, and Alpha going ahead. Alpha just had some early limited running. I think they've had their own slew of issues. They also have followed uh, the the Ferrari design philosophy far more closely. And so I think their fate is a bit tethered to theirs as well, similar to Williams and, and having an aero philosophy more akin to Mercedes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that broader that broader storyline will, will kind of dictate their faith or uh, their fate. Yeah. But I mean, you look back at last year and it's, it's a couple of random races where Williams pulls out a big points haul, right? So it, it can totally be a wet weather race, uh, a lot of crashes early up, you know, higher up on the grid in a race where you pull out uh, a few points here and there. And that's the difference between these bottom three. So super hard to tell, but again, with Albon, you know, Latifi's got several years under his belt now. So, I mean, not, not the most outstanding performer on the grid, but he knows the car, right? He's been on the team and Albon, I think will be a huge lift to that team. Um, I don't think he performed terrible when he was on Red Bull. I think he caught a couple of bad breaks that really dampened the view of him because he ended up being crashed out a couple of times by Hamilton, um, depriving of some top two or three position points. And so I, I think he'll come back ready to go a little less pressure on his shoulders and, and do a good job. So I have him at eighth. All right. I think that's, I think that's fair enough. I, I sensed a little bit of maybe misplaced love for Nicholas Latifi kind of creeping out there. I just want to like, he is, he is a, he is basically Lance Stroll with a better haircut hmm. is, is everything that we hate about Lance Stroll is true of Nicholas Latifi. I think he's incredibly like untalented and I think it's an absolute shame that he still has a seat in formula one. Yeah. Well, I think it's safe to say there are too, too many Canadians on the grid. I think we can both agree on that. 
Yeah, what's up with that? We can't get an American driver to save our lives and we have two Canadians as money drivers. We got way more billionaires in Canada. You'd think we would have... Yeah, where, where is the American money stepping up and putting one of their sons in a race seat? I mean, come on. So where do you have Alpha shaking out? I have him number nine. Um, just a, ahead of the, the venerable Haas. Again, I already said, I think they had a lot of issues. Um, they didn't get as much running questions still on the, the design philosophy, their ability to develop the car throughout the year, all question marks, but look, Botas, huge asset to that team. He's going to give them a good foundation. And Joe had a, uh, I think a really good, a really good outing in testing. I think day three, he performed well. He got a lot of laps in. He looks strong. Um, you know, I think they are in a, in a good position from a driver lineup, but questions about, about the development there. All right. I'm yeah, I've got alpha in, uh, in ninth. I give him the nod over Williams because of Botas, but then that's all right. Well, let's see. We'll, uh, we'll see where we're at and come December. Best of luck to you. I appreciate it. So the, I think the overall takeaway of, of our testing summary is we are consistent through the top three. Although I will remind everybody that you, just adopted my order after I gave my take. So there's definitely some stolen intellectual property. Whoa, whoa, whoa. For the what top is your order? I have, I have Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes. I'm sticking by Mercedes in number three. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and put Mercedes three. I totally thought you switched that at the end. Nah, All right. Nah. So I'm, I try so to I'm, agree I'm, with you as little as possible. And, and this will be a, this will be one I'll, I'll stand in, in distinction. I'm Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari, and then down the order, it just turns into complete chaos. Um, but I think with that's, the, that's with the standout prediction being Haas finishing. Did you say four? Fourth. Fourth. Wow. Haas with the McLaren takedown. <laughs> I I would love to see it. Time will tell. All right, let's transition the conversation. Drive to survive. We've already covered a bunch of different threads about drive to survive, so we don't maybe need to spend a ton of time on this. But well, I guess I should ask you first of all, did you have you finished the season? I mean, it came out on Friday, so. Well, no, I'm I'm glad we saved the the really the more important part of the the content for the second half. You know, the trivialities of the actual track time aside, let's get into what everybody is really dying to know and talk about, which is Drive to Survive, right? Um look, I started the first episode this weekend, early this weekend, I'll have you know. And by the end of the first episode, I had to like step away because of the, the heart palpitations I was having because of the contrived level of drama that the show has. I mean, <laughs> my God, it is like a it is like a combination of of a Michael Bay movie mixed with a oh, hip hop <laughs> mixed oh, with a oh, hip hop no. music video mixed with The Bachelorette. I mean, it is. <laughs> It's a lot. Um, so I eventually came back to it. I didn't clear all the episodes, but but I'm about halfway through. So hopefully you can you can fill me in for the the second half, and you know maybe not ruin how the last year finished, but uh, you know you can you can talk me. Are through. you going to finish the season? Are you going to finish watching it? it? Was this like an offline question? No, I'm asking. Like, are you going to? finish watching the season i'll probably yeah i'll probably finish it for all sure. right well yeah. you can bitch it i have enough dead time in my my calendar that i can yeah i can finish that thread. well then that's confirmation to me that netflix is clearly better at their job than you are at yours like you can bitch and drone moan about all the melodrama and the lack of the ability to tell like a consistent story but at the end of the day 
it's like super compelling entertainment. And I think this show is going to be a mainstay for a long time. So yeah, am I looking forward to like picking apart like all the inefficiencies in the storytelling? Sure. But like at, they're also trying to capture a very wide net of content in a relatively small amount of episodes and you got to pick and choose. And so there's trade-offs. I don't know. Well, look, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't argue with your point whatsoever that they are better than me at my job, whether it be on this podcast or in any other professional capacity, I'll give you that. Um, and you make a good point, right? The, the narrative being, it has been super compelling to bring particularly new audiences into the sport, very popular in the United States. But it does raise a question of, you know, it, you came into the sport as a result of Drive Survive. Yep. Myself, however, was a fan of the sport prior to Drive to Survive. And, and over time, you've gotten deeper into the sport. How has your view of Drive to Survive actually changed now that you've sort of seen the other side? I think... Um, I think like anything, like the closer, the closer you get to something, the, the more you can see like the hyperbole and hysteria. Mm -hmm. I wish I, I, so I, I guess it's tough for me to sit here and say, I don't enjoy drive survive as much as I did when I first found it. But maybe the, maybe the way I would say it is I go to drive to survive for something different now Mm. than I did previously, like seasons one and two. I hadn't actually seen, I hadn't like been a fan of Formula One end to end through an entire season. And so I didn't know the nuance. And so I depended on Drive to Survive to help actually understand Formula Mm. One and to evaluate teams and performance and things like that. I'm not looking to Drive to Survive for any of that now. Like I'm looking for them to just purely entertain me, like in the truest sense. And so what does that mean? I want more Sherry Horner. I want more Jack Wolf. Like I want more Gunther Steiner taking sponsorship photos next to some like boat. Like he's like the Gerber baby. Like I want all of that. I don't need you to tell a coherent story about the sequence of racing at all. Like I'm here purely for the clickbait. That's how my view of it's evolved. So you fully embraced drive to survive as your, your version of, you know, housewives of, of Los Angeles. Yeah, the only sacrificial lamb. I, so the show can continue in the direction that it needs to continue, but they, I, they, Will Buxton needs to go. He, he doesn't oscillate the drama, mm-hmm. and so it completely loses its impact entirely. Like him, he's talking about basically the finish in Abu Dhabi with the same level of drama as like, I don't know, like Vettel's contract renegotiation. You're just like, dude, these aren't the same. Like. Anyway, I'm over him. Yeah, no, I think um, it's good to know that there is a bridge too far where the the quality of the content can go so overhyped that that even you find it unbearable. Um, so, you know, I have to make one pause here. While we're on the, the topic of Will Buxton, there was one point that I did see throughout this Silverstone episode that, you know, he very offhandedly characterized Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen's driving style. And, and he claimed, you know, while, while Ham- Verstappen is aggressive and a, almost a dirty driver, you know, Lewis Hamilton is the, the perpetually clean driver on the grid. Now I'm going to take a lot of flack for this one from, from all of the Hamilton fans. I'm absolutely sure. So 
I'm fully aware of what I'm walking into here. But I mean, I think it's quite a bit easier to drive a clean race when you're sitting at the front of the grid with a 30 second lead <laughs> oh, here on everybody. Go. I mean, there's not a lot of conflict points that one has to that one has to to manage. Um, whereas you see a number of situations in very recent seasons of Mr. Alex Albon, you know, challenging Hamilton for a second or third spot and and being unceremoniously punted with a, a front ha- tire of Lewis Hamilton against the back axle of Albon, which is characteristic of, of Hamilton moves in past. So I think uh, Will Bugston showing a, a bit of a, a bit of bias there. So uh, he, he took a notch down in credibility with me on, on that one. But, but I guess to that point, it makes me wonder, Drive to Survive, obviously very effective, bringing people into the sport, but can it continue to do so? Or does it ultimately, can it continue to play that role as, as feeding some separate appetite? Or do you think ultimately the, the nature of the content evolves to bring it more in line with the broader culture of F1? Because I do think you've seen, you know, with this influx of audiences, potentially a greater share of fan base being very personality driven and and having their favorite driver and defending them to the death regardless of the actual facts on the ground the the real events of the race itself so i worry there's a bit of this kind of caustic culture that comes with these sort of casual fans and and do you think drive to survive ultimately tries to play a bit more of a an educational role rather than a purely controversy it's a really really good personality question. driven uh, one and I'm sitting here reflecting on like uh, the best proxy for Drive to Survive I can think of, which is you've mentioned earlier, Hard Knocks. I thought Hard Knocks was cool as shit the first two seasons it was out. I hadn't watched it in like three or four years. And yep. I, it's not like I stopped watching the NFL. So yep. I do think that there is something mm-hmm. to – there's something here, which is you – there is an inevitable like just level of novelty that has to wear off. So I do, I do think that the role has to evolve. Yep. But I honestly, I, I guess my view is I'm not sure that it can, because I think that it is doing the model Mm -hmm. that Netflix is able to specialize in and anything that would be fundamentally more detailed and informed about the actual like truths of the sport would have to be produced by the teams or Formula One themselves. And I think that'll happen, right? So like McLaren unboxed, Red Bull's got the series now. They almost are kind of like starting their own TV shows, if you will. And I think that that continues to grow. Yep. And so there maybe is a future where Drive to Survive just falls out of popularity because like there's no need for that level of character development because Formula One's able to kind of almost like self-provision their own content in a way to keep the story going. Um, yeah. And, and then yeah, Drew, drive to survive is truly the, the top of the marketing funnel. Yes. Getting exposure to as many eyeballs as possible. And then filling a, a, a gap in the market that exists where obviously you have the extreme technical content, you have the F1 content itself. So you think it'll continue to play that top of the funnel feeder role, catching that audience. But to your point at a certain time, you will have, you will have captured as many eyeballs as you can yeah. of new member you know new audience members and so either drive to survive dies overall as people get deeper and filter into those other content providers or or not well look i think the other thing that you know drive to survive is hampered by is just like 
yeah, they've got great access to the teams, but they don't have perfect access, right? And so, like, throughout the year, you always hear, it's like, oh, Drive Survive was with Mercedes at, at, at Silverstone. Like, this is going to be a nuts episode. And, like, but there's also a lot of places they weren't when really interesting stuff happened. And so Netflix as a network is always, through their contract with Formula One, going to be fundamentally disadvantaged uh, in access relative to the teams themselves. And the teams themselves... Ha, like have the capital and the ability to really push like really good digital content and storytelling. So I think they probably rise in prominence, drive to survive. I, so I think it, it makes drive to survive probably even more of the thing that you hate, mm. which is they'll even lean into the extreme, extreme drama, biggest yep. headlines. Yeah. yeah. Cause, cause where's Netflix going to go to try and grow the viewer base in absence of increased loyalty from actual formula one fans. They're going to go to people who aren't Formula One fans and try and make the drama of it really sell just in general, not even just to a sports person. So I don't know. And while it has grown significantly, I mean, it, it's probably pretty far from that saturation point. But I do yeah. think the an interesting yeah. indicator for them will be kind of recurring viewership because I'll be honest, I only continued to watch those subsequent episodes after after my, uh, my brief heart attack uh, on episode one. I only came back to it for the purpose of preparing for this show. And so honestly, if, if I didn't have yeah. this show, I wouldn't have watched the rest of drive to survive. I saw everything I needed to in episode one, and I would have stepped away to watch far more insightful content. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if similar to you, others were excited to, to get that extra access and then yeah. step away because they realize it doesn't actually provide them with any more depth. But I do want to get your take, having watched the entire season, in the episodes that I watched, one of them kind of centered around the whole Silverstone controversy. And so it seemed like, like what was the absence of Verstappen like? Because to question. your point, not having full access to everything, I, I felt like they were a bit, um, I'm not sure what a good a good comparison is, but they just seem like these these needy sort of tag-alongs where they would just they would just siphon off little clips that they could in like Verstappen in passing or because Horner was mic'd up they they would get a conversation with him but it seemed like they were grasping at straws um, to get Verstappen in especially given where the year went I mean just a just a massive troll on his part of not participating in the most his most epic year to date yeah I think um Look, at the end of the day, that driver's championship story told itself. Mm -hmm. So you didn't need like all of this crazy behind the scenes access and all of these like, you know, revelations to like tell that story in a differentiated way. It told itself. Yeah. I think that to some degree they did kind of supplement the lack of Verstappen and they pulled in a lot of his press conference things. I agree. It was like a little bit of like a child tugging, tugging at the coattails like type of vibe. Yeah. But they... They definitely supplemented it with more Christian Horner. I think he probably got more screen time than than literally anyone, which I'm here for. And again, I'll go back to Sherry Horner. Like, I, I think they should probably make her a permanent part of the team. Like, <laughs> bring her on. I don't know what her job could be. She's obviously a very talented woman. Probably could do anything. Probably could probably could run their marketing department. Like, I I I I genuinely loved that side of it. I didn't think that the Verstappen thing diminished the overall story. Hmm. And they also didn't they didn't character assassinate either him or Lewis like 
end the thread of the Drivers' Championship. I thought they appropriately balanced. It's two guys with very different approaches in just like an absolute blistering competitive environment, and it was just a complete just like collision course. Um, I thought they told the story pretty well. And look, like one thing Netflix does really well is the, the music, man. Like the music, I was I just watched it on the plane on the way back from Chicago. The music for that last episode, I mean, it makes your hand, it makes your hair stand up on your arms. Like, and then them switching between like Verstappen overtakes, they go to his pit crew and show them like losing their minds in the garage. Like it, like you felt the intensity of the race again, like as if you had watched it when, you know, when, when you watched it. So yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hard for them to fumble that ball, but I thought, I thought they did a pretty respectable job with it. Well, you're really giving me the the hard sell to, to talk me into seeing the rest of the episodes. <laughs> well, it is interesting because I do think they, at least from what I had seen so far, it, it was effective, at least in Verstappen's objective of not giving them enough ammunition to vilify him or paint him as the, as the, um, the anti-hero in this case or the antagonist. But I did find it interesting on the, the Monaco uh, one you know, of course they had to pull the sound bite of him, you know, cussing and, you know, being angry at Leclerc for crashing in Q3. It's like any barb they could find where they could, they could show him as like an aggressive, angry driver they did. Um, and so, but I, I do find it interesting of they had to find uh, another bad guy in lieu of him. And this is where I struggle a bit with how they produce it overall is it's all in hindsight, right? The, the bad guy at the end of the year is somewhat different than the bad guy at the beginning of the year. And I felt like they tried to find anyone with a vaguely German or Russian accent, which I think just appeals to America's uh, Hollywood psyche of, you know, die hard. It's got to be um, Alan Rickman with a, an Austrian accent to, to be the bad guy and steal in the bearer bonds. And I felt like they leaned into that both with, you know, Toto seemingly being the bad guy right um also anytime gunter gave anybody shit it seemed like they they needed to get that on camera i think they had him saying like asking if some guy gained weight it's like anytime gunter stepped in it they got to show him and then of course you have the mazapins um you know as as set up as the bad guys and so yeah it, it seemed like anyone with a moderately german or eastern european accent was there was their bad guy in, in absence of verstappen Am I picking up a twinge of sympathy f- for the Mazepins? <laughs> um, no, I don't think I don't think sympathy. I didn't say whether the moniker of bad guy was rightly or wrongly deserved. Merely characterizing a a characteristic. I'm not I'm not fully upset that. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think there's any. I I didn't actually get to finish that episode yet. That's where I'm where I'm currently at. I will say. I do appreciate the Mazepin's level of paranoia that they had with the, the institution around them for no justified reason, but purely for their sort of very insulated view that somehow the Haas team was sabotaging Mazepin as though they weren't reliant on their money to succeed. So it was sort of a weird uh, psychological, I mean, they just got tiresome, right? Holding the money over the head of the team. Um, Yeah. I mean, if I have sympathy for anyone on that list, it would have to be Gunter and having to manage just an impossible stable of, of personalities and, and conflicting needs from the team. When I was listening to the Mazepins talk about the 
paranoia around car development. I literally felt like I was listening to Donald Trump talk about the election. <laughs> I, I honestly, like it yeah. rose to that level of like a combination of paranoia and like irrationality, but yeah. also like anger and kind of aggression in a way that like made me a little bit afraid. Like it was anyway, I think they're bad people. I'm glad they're out of sport. I hope they never come back. Yeah. I mean, I think just from the health of the Haas team, I think from the quality of the overall driver lineup across the grid, I mean, yeah, it's it's in the best interest of, of the sport. But that didn't stop um, Netflix. I just wonder how – I mean, they had to have had that queued up even pre-February 24th, right? I mean, that had to be part of the – the scripting of the show all along. Oh, right? oh, 100%. So it, uh, oh, 100%. if nothing else, um, unfortunate, like sort of brings it into the spotlight or, or validates it even more. So the, the Haas episode was, the, was the best episode. I think, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, the other, the other point you made earlier, I want to touch on was that infuriated me about how I, I didn't get mad at a lot. I gave him a lot of grace about like insufficiencies and gaps and how they tell a story. But one thing I, that really pissed me off was the episode before the Monaco episode. They almost covered Monaco twice. It was weird. They did it at yeah. the end of an episode, and then they basically retold the same story from a different perspective. Yeah. But the first time they told the Monaco story at the end of the the first episode, they they literally talked about what happened to Charles Leclerc, like to his gearbox on race day, without giving any context for the fact that the only reason Mm. that that happened was because he hit the freaking wall. Yeah. So if you if you don't watch the sport and you didn't watch Monaco, you basically left that episode before you turned on the next one believing that he just had like an like a mechanical failure that wasn't his fault. And he's like, "Oh, out of the race and like you're supposed to have sympathy for him." I'm like, "Why would you even leave the door open to somebody having sympathy for Charles Leclerc?" based on those events. I got I got very mad about that. I was like, "How could you not have Literally just spent one breath, get Will Buxton to dramatize in one breath that he had a tank slapper the day before and that they couldn't pull his gearbox apart. And so they didn't know and they had to risk it and they rolled the dice like none of that. They gave none of that. I was. Ugh. Well, I think that's one of the sad things, too, is the, the, the bit of the absence of the engineering side of things. Right. Like that's yeah. the first casualty of the the narrative yeah. is nobody caring about the the trivialities of gearbox functioning god forbid right um so yeah that's that's an interesting take i will say the the thing in the first half of the season that that disappointed me is other than the the german and eastern european um antagonists throughout the year i think they did their best to make lando norris an antagonist in the series as well for the only sin of outperforming the golden calf that is daniel ricardo to huh. the Netflix producers. I mean, there was lots of little snippets of playing on the whole, well, Lando doesn't have sympathy for Danny Rick or these little barbs of, you know, how excited he was to outperform Ricardo. And so it's just like they tried to to paint yeah. one of the most well-liked people on the grid but, as this sort of a bit of an egotistical, like excited that he's beating his teammate. Um, and so I, I wasn't a big fan of that, that micro narrative. Yeah, I think they probably overplayed it. But also, they kind of benchmarked it to the first half of the season. And I actually do think that there was like a growing, an adjustment period. Absolutely. Where Lando and Daniel Ricardo were kind of feeling each other out. And like, 
they weren't actually that friendly. Like I remember watching some of the um the car launch stuff and like when they introduced Danny Rick as a driver and like shit was awkward. Yeah. Like when they would be interviewed side by side, like they weren't laughing at each other. Like when you juxtapose it against the signs Lando dynamic, it was very different and kind of cringeworthy. Yeah. I do think that they obviously like it's just you know, it's just like life. You gotta get to know people. So like they're probably fine now, and I don't think either of them is a malicious person. I do think that they overplayed that a little bit, but there was a lot of truth. Maybe not to like I, I agree with your take insofar as I don't think it was ever the result of bad intentions from Lando. I think it was just awkwardness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they definitely didn't have the rapport of Lando and, and Carlos, particularly because of, I mean, it was probably Ricardo's struggles that creates that awkwardness because they're all in the same boat and they all know what that means. Right. Um, but yeah, again, it goes back to how much you amplify the individual identity and characterizing that identity versus what is the norm and the, the sort of the common experience across all of them. Yeah, um, I, I so agree. I was, I was a little bigger, bitter about the, the Lando portrayal. So last point I want to ask you about on, on drive to survive, uh, Mr. Kimmy Raikkonen. <laughs> tell, me about, tell me about his his presence in the Drive Dude, to Survive season. I would love to share something with you. There's literally nothing to share. Like, if you didn't follow Formula One, you wouldn't know that Kimi Raikkonen was a driver. Like, I'm like I'm pretty convinced that even like you know those the the the, the picture they take at testing with the V where all the drivers are standing with their teammate and they're standing. I'm pretty sure they like cut Raikkonen's face like out of the pano shot of that scene he was nowhere and i'm like to the extent where i'm starting to wonder whether like the raikkonen camp was like literally don't talk about me he was never interviewed a single time no one ever spoke about him like very little of his on-track highlights were shown i actually as i'm sitting here don't remember one like none of the scraps he had with seb or anyone at any point in the season the dude was a complete ghost wasn't mentioned a single time Crazy. Wow. Didn't realize until after the fact. What's what's also sad about that, and I'm sure Kimmy likes it this way because who he is. But I also didn't even pick up on that the entirety of the season. Never yeah. even noticed until after the fact. And I was like, "Oh, holy shit!" <laughs> yeah, a little a little sad as a farewell year, but probably as you said, exactly how we would have wanted and indicative yeah. of of the personality overall. But yeah, I mean, a shocking absence given, given a final season, you would have thought he would have deserved something a bit more ceremonious, right? And if not a, an in memory of, or, or something along those lines, but yeah, wow. Complete, complete, uh, shit protest. No, <laughs> a complete absence in the show. I look the other the only other thing I'll say about Drive Survive that I think was a good and listen you know I'm not Team Mercedes I'll go across the pond for a second. Uh, Jack Wolf, son of Toto and Susie Wolf. Uh, I don't know what that kid's going to want to do in life. Whether it's acting, I don't know. Maybe he's going to be the guy that invents nuclear fusion. But that dude is a he's a beautiful child. He seems like he's going to be very intelligent. Jack Wolf is a phenomenal name to do anything in life. And I'm just glad he got some screen time. I'm glad that Toto and Susie consented to that, opened up their family breakfast, even gave Jack a couple lines. Great for the family. I, I, I very, very bearish or bullish on Jack Wolf. Uh, I mean, yeah, with a last name like Wolf, I mean, it's pretty hard to screw up, screw up a good first name pairing. You, you, you kind of have an epic name no matter what you do from that point. But to your point of the whole family, 
side of things, I know you're a great fan of the Horners and, and seeing all that you can in the intimacy of their home life. But I mean, who, what was the, what was one of the sponsors for drive to survive? I feel like it was the, the English tourism department has a big role to play. I mean, does he often go out horseback riding and shotgun shooting? I mean, I feel like they had to convey him in the most quintessential English settings they could possibly find. You say that in jest, but dude, every time the little like geotag would come up in the transitions and it would say Oxfordshire, yeah, England, I would like me, I just like get giddy. I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to the Horner's house. <laughs> I'm surprised they don't have like a QR code for Airbnbs in the area <laughs> right there. Yeah, Jeez. Uh, it was good, dude. I mean, they, you, you, I don't think the way that they tell their English, like communicate through the show, their English lifestyle is hyperbolic at all. I think they just have like that quintessential of, of an English lifestyle. Well, I, I certainly hope so because it is, it is serenely idyllic and um, I'm glad they get to live that life. I'm going to tell you one thing that is a tragedy though. And this was true when they were at Toto's house too. Netflix is very careful to not show any cutscenes of the help. Like of the au pair or like the butler mm. or like any of the staff. And you know all these guys have. Oh, well, naturally. I mean, it's only the most the most familial, like intimate, like, oh, let me put that piece of bread in my, my son's mouth. And oh, it's so adorable. That was the only time he saw him in eight months. I'm not here to judge Christian Horner as a father. I think that's incredibly, incredibly uh, shameful of you to do, quite frankly, because... You know, he probably FaceTimes every night. But I do think I'm here for the help in Oxfordshire, England. I want, if they're out there, they listen to this podcast. I don't know who you are, but I just want you to know that you're seen. So is that the next, is that the next series when Drive to Survive dies down? Do you want like the, the real help of F1 families? Oh, I mean, I would, I would eat that up, man. If you just had <laughs> film crews bouncing around the countryside of the outskirts of London, oh, man. just having like a reality TV show with some of these people. So, Oh, Gerald, man, I just blinked and I realized we were already over 90 minutes. So, uh, yeah, I think this is as good of a place to wrap as any. We had a lot to get through. All right, let's do it. Well, I have some drive to survive to finish up, so it'll be good to get back to it tonight. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. This was a blast. We'll be back with another episode at the conclusion of the grand Bahrain Grand Prix next weekend and every Grand Prix after that. If you like the show, leave a like, leave a comment, and you'll be hearing from us soon. Enjoy.